Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Arbo Manity. So glad to have you here, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Elizabeth Gordon. She is a friend of mine and a professional. She is a sexual health psychiatrist and a sex therapist. She is a wonderful person with a lot of experience and wisdom, and she's also a buddy of mine from Ishwish. If you want to know more about Ishwish, check out the website. We'll put it in the show notes. But otherwise, I'd love to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Gordon. I'm so excited to be here and to be able to talk with you on your podcast. Thank you. And today we are talking about how to talk to kids about sex. Um, Because Dr. Gordon takes care of multiple different age groups, adults, children, adolescents, correct? I don't. I actually see adults. But one of the things that I do do, because I have a background in child psychiatry, is that I have developed curriculum for um, how to incorporate sexual health education and sexual health support in medicine for children and adolescents. And I also so do in my private practice, I see families um, or parents who are looking yeah. to figure out how to best support their children's sexual health and help them set up a game plan. That's perfect. So that's exactly what we want to know, what our listeners want to know today is how do you bring up the topic of sex with your kids? And my first question is how early is, you know, how early should we be thinking about doing that? I think that we should be thinking about doing that before the child is born. And I think we should be uh, starting to bring up elements of sexual health thinking about it and then incorporating elements of sexual health support from the moment the child is born. Okay. How do you do that with a baby? You're talking about like a newborn baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So when I say starting before the child is born is first to understand what is sexual health, what is sexual health development, and how is that going to be a part of what you do with your child? Um, and also to think about what are your family values around sexuality that you eventually want to convey, plus getting a grasp on what is medically and scientifically accurate sex positive sexual health education so that you have a bit of a plan in advance to um, uh, be able to follow this pathway. But it's never too late to get to it. And the sooner you get to it, the better, but better late than never. Pre-parenting, just thinking through and also examining yourself for your own biases, your own thoughts on things, your own values. That's kind of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And then understanding, especially from the outset, that whatever sex your child is, what are your valuations of their gender? And do you want to pass those on or not? And when... When do you want to start thinking about that? To my mind, preferably before they're born. (laughs) Maybe when you're thinking about doing a gender reveal, that's an opportunity for you to be reflecting um, about what you mean by that. I I have a friend and colleague who, instead of a gender reveal, did a genital reveal, which I thought was (laughs) was really cool. Um, I think that's great. (laughs) Because it's like really more about genitals than about gender at that point. you have a a fetus growing. Yeah, Yeah, it is very, very true. There is a um, wonderful quote that I love, which is, sex is what's between the legs, gender is what's between the ears. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So now that a child is born, for example, should we be talking about sex or sexuality, 
you know, when they are toddlers or what do you so do at that stage? I, I really do believe that the most important thing to understand is that sexual health education and support is not actually talking about sex as in penis and vagina intercourse or erotic engagement, um, the way that many adults conceive of the word sex or think about sexual health education or sex ed. And what is important to understand is that really good sexual health education is like any other education on any other topic, something that can be started very, very young and done in an age appropriate and developmentally appropriate manner. And that like any other complicated topic, there are a number of foundations that you want to work on well before you get to the advanced stuff. So that it's kind of like math. You start counting your little kid's toes even before they can speak. But that's not only telling them they have body parts, that's giving them numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and quantifying. And then as they get older, you teach them addition and subtraction, and then you move on to multiplication, and you need all of this to be able to get to higher level mathematics, um, whether you're going to be doing some calculus or whether you're going to be balancing a checkbook, you need some of these basics by telling your infant, okay, here's your checkbook. This is what you need to balance. Right. So many of these foundations are things that are so important for kids anyway. They are knowing your body and its body parts, understanding that sensuality and bodily pleasure is a right and something to be protected and safeguarded. Um, That both helps keep your kids safe and helps keep them happy and healthy and satisfied sexually later on, way later on. And then knowing boundaries for themselves, what they want, what's allowable, that they have agency and for others, that they cannot touch people without their consent. These are very good kindergarten basics or even pre-kindergarten basics, but they also matter later on for sexual health. I love that analogy with math and giving people the basics and giving kids the basics, really. And it seems like what we should be giving little kids when they're developing uh, verbal skills and understanding, you know, anything really is correct body parts and correct anatomy. Is that what you're saying? That is one of the really key foundations. Having correct language for all of the body parts. Um, doesn't mean that you can't use some more cute names as well, but the children should know what the agreed upon name is, because that actually speaks into multiple different contexts. One is that for safety, they need to know what parts are what. I heard a tale, and I hope that this was not true, uh, but fear that it might have been, that there was a young girl who was telling her teacher that her uncle was touching her muffins and kept on taking her muffin. And this went on for weeks or months before the teacher realized that muffin was a term for genitals. Um, And if the child had also the word for vulva, then that might not have happened. So knowing these names so that a child can report what is going on where is a question of safety, but equally as important, we so often focus on risk and on safety. Equally important is a sex positive focus. And when you name all the body parts, that is legitimizing them. That is 
giving the child the understanding that these are also body parts and they do not have to be just sexual. It seems like, you know, we teach kids their eyes, their nose, their mouth. We teach them this from a super young age. We put song lyrics (laughs) to those (laughs) words. And yet we're almost passing on this idea of stigma or hiddenness or mystery when we don't teach them the correct anatomical parts of their genitals. Because why, you know, why would that be different than what we have in our face and what the rest of our body is? You know, and it, they pick up those things, right? Stigma they, transmitted by omission. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I just needed a psychiatrist to put <laughs> the correct terms. It is definitely stigma that is transmitted by omission. Um, and we don't put the names to it collectively as a society. We don't put the names to the genitalia because those are stigmatized components of the body. And they're stigmatized because they are thought to be involved in sexuality. But then the line gets blurred and people think they are only sexual or they are the sexual parts. But really, these are parts that are important and have function for many other reasons besides just sexual engagement and just reproduction. And for so many reasons, for general health and for sexual health, we should be naming these parts. Yeah, I appreciate that. And thanks for sharing the, you know, I think every parent's horror stories and what we worry that if we talk about sex, then, you know, we're giving them too much information, but also we don't want our kids to get into situations where they can't report to us what is happening to keep them safe and prevent. Talking about genitals is not talking about sex. Talking about genitals is talking about body parts. I love that. Right. You're hundred percent right. So when should we actually start talking about sex? When should when do you think that concept from a development standpoint should should be brought up? I think that it's really easy to talk to very young kids um, between the age of birth or when they're starting to be able to converse, definitely by age two uh, and up to four, maybe six, especially because so often that's when other young kids are around or you as a parent are with other parents who either are gestating or having babies or adopting. So the question of babies and where do they come from comes up. And that's one of the first things you can talk about is that, um, you know, it depends how you want to phrase it. And I'm not in any way suggesting that you need to be um, exclusionary with this phrase, but something along the lines of babies come from mommies or babies come from, um, Females who have a special place, a uterus where the baby grows, uh, can be a great starting point. And talking about where babies come from can be very straightforward. It's biological. This is how it happens. Uh, You can talk about babies need two parts, one from a man or a male, one from a woman or a female, and then they grow in the uterus. Um, When you talk about it, if kids have more questions, it's important to answer them honestly and straightforwardly, but you don't need to offer more information initially, especially initially. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. They both know their body parts as well as male body parts very well. Um, They haven't really asked me or my husband where babies come from at this point. Um, They have some idea that there's a hospital involved (laughs) somewhere along the line, but they literally haven't asked that question yet. So it's not that we're hedging. We just haven't gone into it. So you would say that that's okay. Just kind of wait until they are asking or is there 
Should we start, you know, reading them books about? I'm a big proponent of reading books starting early on to introduce these concepts. Um, Kids love books. It's an easy way to launch the information. I think you have an extremely easy in, you know, you know, mommy is, an obstetrician and a gynecologist. Do you know what mommy's job is about? Right. Mommy's job is about, you know, dealing a lot with babies. Do you know where babies come from? Do you know what mommy deals with? Yeah. <laughs> so talking about it in that way, um, you know, I often feel that my job makes my kids' sex ed very easy because they have some deep knowledge at this point, but it's because I'm going to talk about my job when they ask and I'm not going to, I'm going to, couch it in age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate terms, but I'm not going to obfuscate. Uh, Psychiatrists or gynecologists out there, and they may not feel as equipped with the language. You think of like children's books, there's some great ones, and we can put some in the show notes too, of (laughs) ones that you recommend if you have any specifically. Um, Any other resources you think we should direct parents to? I think books are a great one because they're so tangible for children. There are some online resources. I know that the um, APA, the American Pediatric Association has a page on their website that talks about sexual health and development um, to get a good idea. There are um, some people online who talk about it. There's some who talk very well about handling adolescence. Um, I do a little bit of dribs and drabs of education on my uh, social media for younger children on through adolescence. Um, and we can definitely provide the books. Um, we bring our kids to a nurse practitioner in our pediatric uh, practice nearby. And she actually blew me away when even at our two-year-old visits, our three-year-old visits, she asks my girls Um, you know, if she's going to look under their diaper or look under their underwear, who's allowed to do that? And she actually brought it up before I did. And I I was so embarrassed because uh, my kids didn't have the right answers in terms of safety the first time she brought it up when my daughter was two. And I realized, oh my gosh, I should even be talking about this now. But I, I love if your pediatrician is not asking those questions or kind of quizzing your kids about who is allowed to look and, you know, examine underneath their clothes, look for another one. Because I, I think that is being taught now. And I've loved that. I love that our nurse practitioner is doing that, um, but and maybe not everyone's doing it. I think that is really true. I think trying to find healthcare professionals who support your uh, journey in trying to do appropriate and supportive sexual health education is extremely important. And that is part and parcel of what is important to be teaching at that very young age, that zero to four. So as I talked about those ideas of your body, knowing your body, the pleasure in your body, but also the boundaries that your body belongs to you and other people's bodies belong to them and rules about personal boundaries. Um, Who can touch, who can hug, how you ask beforehand. And also talking to them, you know, at this age, talking about safety is important but it can also be done in a way that is educational and not scary so that you can talk about what are okay touches versus not okay touches. And this is really easy with the two to four year old crowd because they're still hitting each other. They're still throwing toys at each other. So you can talk about what is an okay touch. It's not okay when your friend hits you. It's not okay if you hit your friend. You wouldn't want me to hit you. 
I don't want you to hit me. That hurts. That's why it's not okay. And your body belongs to you and their body belongs to them. And you can't do things to other people's bodies without permission. And you can't do things that hurt. Um, and those are fine, concrete messages for that age because they're very concrete. At that age. <laughs> and then talk, I'm sorry, the last one I would say is talking about surprises versus secrets. That it's okay to talk about, it's okay to have a, it's okay to have something that you're not telling somebody if you're going to tell them later. It's okay to keep uh, what a present is a surprise. But that's not the same as a secret where somebody tells you you can't tell them. And it clearly established who the safe adults are and their life is, is important. Yeah, it yeah. really is. So that they know who is safe to go to. Okay. And then also for that age group, not to focus that much on them, but I guess that's kind of my lived experience is, is that they self-soothe. And I see, I'm in these Facebook groups of doctor moms and I hear, or I see people post like, oh, my, my daughter seems to be like masturbating basically before she goes to sleep. We're seeing her on the camera, um, the, you know, that's on the crib. Is this a problem? Should I bring her to the gynecologist and see if she has a UTI? And it's, it's very normal, right? It's extremely normal. One of my absolute favorite facts ever in sexual health period is that there are fetuses who masturbate in utero. In fact, it probably is pretty common. It is easy to see with male fetuses, not as easy to see with female fetuses, but now that people started looking, they're realizing that's going on. What we have to understand is that the genitalia is in one way, just another body part. In another way, it's a highly, highly, highly innervated body part that sends direct signals to the pleasure areas of our brain. And that doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. It right. is rather like somebody who enjoys getting their shoulders rubbed because it's relaxing um, or their feet rubbed. The feet are full of nerve endings. That's why it feels good to have a foot rub. And the same for the genitalia. And for children, it's quite, quite soothing and pleasurable to touch their genitalia. And this starts happening in utero and it progresses throughout. If, if left unchecked in the way that you do not stop them, but provide them appropriate guidelines that we can get into in a moment. It will continue throughout childhood, but it is not sexual. The same way that adults conceive of sexuality, it is a self-soothing behavior and it doesn't become sexual into, until very close to adolescence. When the hormones start changing, the body starts changing, the system starts changing, and then it can start to have some sexual component. I think that gets us to how to, you know, how do you, how do you appropriately corral this behavior? Right. I loved, you said you would um, kind of give some guidelines or some parameters of how do you respond to, or do you respond to it? I think that it's extremely important to respond to it because we do live in a society in which touching the genitalia is stigmatized and in which we very much um, put sexuality, sexual engagement, and anything that has the appearance thereof behind closed doors. Um, and I'm not judging that. I'm just making that as a statement of how we handle it. Um, and so to have our children be able to understand that and fit into these cultural guidelines, we do need to not let it go completely so that at any moment in the middle of the playground, in the middle of dinner, they are engaging in this behavior. But as you said, you're, 
you are also addressing a behavior that has impact about their conception of their body, their conception of their actions, their conception of their sexuality in the moment and ongoing. And I really like to take the tack of, you know, I know that probably feels good. And if you would like to continue to do that, that's great. But that's something that you could go into your room and continue to do. And when you're finished, when you're done, then you can come back and join us. If you ever want to do it again, just let us know you want to go to your room, and then you can come back when you're done. It feels very normalizing, non-shaming. It's just that there's a place for that. Rather the same way that you teach them, no, you can't just poop in the corner of the living room. You need to go to the potty, and that's where you do it. But you try to do that in a non-shaming, normalizing fashion. You can do the same thing with this behavior. Yeah, I love that. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. So um, what if you suspect that your child is LGBTQ plus and you want to be supportive, but you also don't want um, to make any assumptions and you don't want to make a big deal about it as your kid is exploring? How do you how do you be a supportive parent in those situations? I think this gets into the question of sex positivity. So what is sex positivity? It's being positive about sex, sexuality, not necessarily saying anything goes, but seeing that this is a normal and wonderful part of being human and that we understand sexuality to be integral to the human experience and that we understand that sexuality comes in so many shapes, sizes, flavors, and colors. There are myriads of spectrums and wonderful diversity to it. And if you start with this premise, or if at least you start with the premise that you really love your child and you want to support them no matter what, then you can uh, embrace this idea more and you can show that you embrace all forms of sexuality without directly addressing what may or may not be going on with your child if you are not certain or don't want to broach it yet. and by doing things like talking about, yeah, every, you know, people love each other. And you can give the examples of, you know, if you are a heterosexual couple, mommy is a woman who loves daddy, who is a man. But you can also have two women who love each other. You can also have two men who love each other. Um, talking about how families come in many shapes and sizes, flavors and colors and uh, interests and backgrounds and normalize the diversity. You have that diversity um, in your family or in your friend's circle, so then your kids are kind of exposed to that and see see that, right? Um, but that's not necessarily always going to be the case because the reality is that the LGBTQ plus population only makes up about 7% of our population overall in the US. So it's not going to be necessarily visible everywhere. Um, but Back to those books and back to the way you read them and talk about them because there are books on every topic and flavor of everything. You can bring those in and talk about how everybody has the right to love whomever they want to love as long as that person is loving them back. And so normalizing this wide variety and all of the different um, beautiful and colorful and amazing permutations and um, shapes and sizes of sexuality and humans is a great way to 
lay the foundation for them to feel that whatever they are, they have a safe place with you. Um, I guess my last question for you is when should a parent seek professional help from someone like you? Like when should someone just say, actually, maybe this is over my head and I need a professional to help me with this? So I would like to reframe that question. I think the question is more along the lines of, um, is there professional help available and why would I want to use it? And I think that it is helpful to know that most people can do this on their own. You can go, you can find these lists of books, you can find resources online, you can follow some of these books for adults, plus have the books for your children, think about what it is that matters to you, but you don't have to do it on your own. If it feels overwhelming, if you have questions, if you're running into sticky situations, if you have a discrepancy between you and your partner, and or trying to figure out how you need to bridge the gap between the two ways you were raised or the two ways you want to communicate or both, then there is help available. So there are at least three or four people that I know, myself included, who offer um, a short series of consultations, one or a handful of appointments in which we can help parents, and I think that there are a lot of um, sexuality educators or sexuality counselors that also would be able to help parents in the same way, talk about what it is that is going on with them, what their background is, what is the issue at hand, and then what their family values are, what they're hoping for, and then help construct a through line with some um, supportive references and some a little bit of supportive work, maybe some role play and help the parents get a much better handle on what their path is from that point on through. So that it's not necessarily that you have to be stuck, though definitely if you are, then seeking some professional help can be a great idea. But even if you just want to make it a little bit easier, then seeking a little bit of professional support can really make it easier, make it more fluid. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Those are all of my questions. And I know we could talk forever, but this is a really great start. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Gordon. I'm so excited to have been here. It was such a great time talking with you and being able to go over some of this information.